Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Glenn Lauder from Fox Sports News. Glenn has been working in the media for over 15 years with Sydney radio stations, 2GB and 2UE, as well as TV stations, Channel 10, Sky News and now Fox Sports. We chat about how a bricklayer played a role in sparking his interest in media, what the Bali bombings taught him about journalism, the shutdown of the 2UE newsroom and how he got the nickname S-Day. Glenn is one of the nicest blokes you'll ever meet, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. Glenn Lauder, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. It's great to be here, Ralph. Thank you. Now, you're working currently at Fox Sports and you've been there for a little while now? Yeah, around about uh, 10 months now at Fox Sports News. Um, obviously headed there after the closure of the 2UE newsroom, which was quite a sad um, sad time in, in the media last year. But um, yeah, Fox Sports News is fantastic covering rugby league and football and you know, you can't really complain too much about being able to watch football and uh, watch rugby league for a living. So how did that all come about? Obviously, you mentioned there the closure of the 2UE newsroom, which uh, merged with 2GB. Was it a case of you being approached or did you have to go knocking on the door to, to get a start there? Yeah, I've, I've always, um, I mean, I've been in the industry for about 15 or 16 years. And as, as you well know, you you build up a lot of contacts. And um, when the 2UE newsroom closed, there was a lot of um, goodwill towards the journos that were affected. Um, I remember going to a sort of a 2UE reunion night um, in North Sydney um, just after the newsroom closed and there were a lot of people that were working at other um, outlets at the time, um, you know, Sky News, Channel 7, Channel 9 uh, in their newsrooms really keen to to help the, the journos that were affected out. So um, spoke to a few people um, at Sky News that I knew through my time in the media in the past and um, at Fox Sports News, Gary Burchett was um, the head there at the time and I'd worked with him at Sky in the past as well. Um, he and I actually support the same uh, very ordinary English soccer team, um, which uh, not many people in Australia do. So um, I knew him through Murray Shaw, um, who's also at Fox Sports in the football department. Um, and Gary just sort of said, you know, um, we don't have anything full-time available, but as a lot of people said at the time, um, you know, we'd really love to, to help you guys out and um, got a few casual shifts and uh, 10 months later I'm still there as a casual. Yeah, and that's all working well. I mean, you're covering the two sports that you really enjoy. What's it like being able to go on to something like the A-League coverage, which has built up its reputation over the last 10 years as been a really strong, not only sports package, but entertainment package as well, just the way that the, the efficiency of the program is run with the pre-game and uh, uh, show and things like that? Yeah, I think um, Fox Sports is really got a lot to answer for in terms of growing football in Australia in the last 12 years. I think if Fox Sports wasn't involved and, you know, without being biased to my employer, I really think Fox Sports has had a huge role in making the A-League what it is because the NSL didn't really have the the level of media coverage it had. Um, football does now and I think that's down to how much effort Fox put into it. And as I said, Murray's the head of football there and I think he's really driven that over the last few years. It's an excellent coverage. Um there's there's great talent, um, you know. Mark Bosnich, Robbie Slater have both played at the very top level in England. Um, you know, Mark Rudin, obviously, John Cosmina, big names in in Australian football as well. Um, and Adam Peacock has has just really made a name for himself over the last five or ten years as well. He's um, 
you know, he's he's excellent at what he does. And and luckily enough, um, you know, they're they're quite happy to help people who aren't necessarily household names, you know, like me. Um and, and Richard Bayless, I guess, who's another one who does a lot on the football coverage, really sort of um, you know, uh, expand their their um involvement in, in the game as well. And um it's been great. Like I didn't expect to be doing much of the football coverage at all this year and I've done quite a bit and I've learned so much and um, you know, just being around the players, the coaches, um, you know, everyone around the A League is, you know, you become part of the part of the, the family, I guess. Um, you know, just because you're in the media, you're still one with the, the players and coaches because you're all football people and, and it's a code obviously that, you know, has to to work hard to keep up with, you know, the AFLs and the rugby leagues because it's it's not as popular in this country. You're known as Estee. <laughs> yes. Pretty straightforward nickname given your surname. Correct. Who was responsible for giving it to you initially? Because that's all I know you as. Like, yeah. you're Estee. You're not Glenn. I don't think I've ever called you Glenn sure. apart from in this podcast. Yeah. The 2GB newsroom was obsessed with nicknames, Rowan Barker in particular. Um, and when I came down from Newcastle, everyone had a nickname. And, and I was Estee before I walked in the building, before I'd met the bloke. Yes. Um, he'd already decided that I was Estee. But interestingly, um, it happened. I was a rugby league referee for a long time. And the very first time I got called Estee was I was refereeing an under-19s game at Erina. And their, their um, ground announcer said, um, who's the referee, who's the touch judges, to read them out over the um, loudspeaker. Um and I said, it's Glenn Lauder. And he said, Glenn Lauder. And I said, no, Lauder, like Estee Lauder. Um, and the teams got read out and then over the loudspeaker got read out. And your referee today is Estee Lauder. And the crowd went nuts and the touch judges were in pleats of laughter. The players were like, everyone was laughing. So the, all of my referee friends obviously started calling me Estee. So I, I had that nickname before I went to 2GB. Rowan Barker thought he was hilarious because he thought he was the first one to come up with it. But... It's a nickname that's just stuck. But it's amazing how many people say, why is your nickname Estee? And I just think to myself, <laughs> look at my look at my surname. It's a very, very obvious nickname, but it's, it, you know, it could be worse. Oh, it could have been Nicky if your surname was pronounced a different Louder, way. Louder, yes. Well, <laughs> people try to call me Nicky and I'm very quick to correct them because it's uh, my father hates Louder and, and it's probably something else I've inherited from him. I don't particularly like hearing Louder either. Let's go back to where it all started for you. You're obviously a sports mad kid. Where did the path lead to to journalism? Why did you pick that as a vocation? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, I don't think there'd be too many journos that say they got into it because their dad was a builder um, and he had a mate who was a bricklayer. <laughs> um, but that was that was kind of how I got into it, bizarrely enough. Um, my dad's mate who was a bricklayer um, was involved in a community radio station and uh, dad was on a building site, um, you know, flicking through the channels and, and this community station, uh, which was called, uh, two triple C Central Coast community back then. It's now called Coast FM. Um, he, he heard it on the radio basically and, and sort of thought he recognized the voice and, and it was his mate who was this bricklayer, Paul Greaves. And he rang Paul and, and said, Oh, you know, are you doing some radio now? I'd like to sort of have a crack because my dad's a huge music buff. Um, right. just a, a absolute music junkie um and sort of thought and doesn't mind the sound of his own voice either and maybe it's maybe it's passed down the generations a little bit I don't know but um yeah and so he rang Paul and and dad went to do the course and I was about 13 at the time and um I said oh, I wouldn't mind having a go at that because they had a sports show on a weekend and right. 
I thought I'll go and, you know, see what it's like. And so I did the, um, the announcer's course and, you know, at 13, 14, I was answering phones for the sports show and started doing my own segments and doing interviews and um, starting to do sponsorship cartridges and, um, you know, before long, I don't think it would have been within a year I was hosting the sports show because the guy who was doing it moved on and, right. um, yeah, and uh, and just sort of got the bug and, and um, I guess, yeah, went from there, started doing a lot of work experience in Sydney um, and managed to, to start off at Sky News sort of straight out of high school. So that was the path for you. You didn't go and do any university study. You'd sort of realised that you could go through that uh, other path that a whole lot of uh, many people have also uh, trodden as well, just getting in there straight away and pretty much learning on the job. Yeah, I, I think learning on the job is, is hugely important, to be honest. Um, I sort of planned to go to uni. Um, all through high school, I was doing community radio, um, hosting a sports show every Saturday, um, hosting a music show as well. Um, I actually hosted about I think 12 hours, one Melbourne Cup day as a 15-year-old because I ended up doing a music show beforehand, the whole uh, racing six hours or so and then a ra- and then a music show afterwards. Um, and I just loved being at the radio station. I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, uh, you know, I, I tried to play sport but it was hard around Saturdays because I wanted to give up sport to be on the radio and um, – and, yeah, through high school I sort of planned to go to university because that's what you need to do to become yeah. a journalist. That's that's kind of the perception. Um, and I'd sort of, you know, had a look in year 11. Uh, you know, maybe um, Charles Sturt at Bathurst had a great journalism uh, degree. Yep. Um, university of Canberra had a great sports media degree uh, and that was kind of the one that I was looking for. Um, I ended up doing a TAFE course in year 11 and year 12, as you do as part of your HSC. Um, it was a journalism course. And I found out about halfway through year 11 that the two units from from that TAFE course didn't actually count to your UAI. Right. So I found out about halfway through year 12 that I wasn't going to get a UAI um, and I kind of put the cue in the rack a little bit in terms of study um, and just went really hard on work experience because I knew that I wasn't going to have that fallback of university yeah. unless I sort of waited till I was 21 and went as a mature age but yeah. um, I wanted to get in the industry and um, – through Andrew Moore, I actually did work experience as a 15-year-old at the old 2GB at Sussex, Sussex Street. Street, yeah. yeah. Um, I did work experience at the old 2UE at Greenwich, which was next door to where 2UE yep. moved to. Um, I remember spending, I think I was, yeah, I was about 16, um, may or may not have had a tab account at the time and <laughs> sat in the uh, in the sports department with Gibbsy uh, pretty much all day just punting and, and that was kind of my... Oh, uh, terrific. Yeah, that was kind of my introduction to, to what what it was like and obviously they work work very hard as well and um yeah i i was whether whether i was at the the community radio station or whether i was at um work experience or whether i was just sitting at home i was writing sports scripts um you know 30 second minute sports scripts for radio just i I was just doing it over and over and over again i'd write 50 a day um wow just just because i i loved the style of writing i loved the um delivery of of Probably the guys at UE mainly at the time. Once again, going back, I've mentioned Murray a few times. Murray Shaw, um, Damian Kelly, um, Dougal Saunders. You know, those guys were kind of the voices that I wanted to be. Um, yeah. And and so yeah, with all that work experience, um, I ended up at, at Sky News um, when they were just a, a tiny operation at French's Forest um, in in Year Twelve. I was sort of just finishing Year Twelve there every holidays helping Justin Higgs, who was the sports department at Sky News. It right. was just him. Um, 
And I think one weekend he decided he needed a bit of help and I went in and I think I got paid about 10 bucks an hour and uh, <laughs> and I was packaging in my, you know, my first weekend there sort of thing as, as an 18-year-old, yeah. So. so what do you learn uh, when you walk into a place like Sky News? It's not the operation as you said that it is today, but did you feel as though that that gave you enough scope to not only figure out what was going on and learn, but also it allowed you to pretty much te- teach yourself how to how to do things. Yeah, I think it was the perfect newsroom for an 18-year-old who had absolutely no idea what they were doing and, and not because Sky didn't, but because Sky was quite small, it was still finding itself as well. It was in the infancy of what it's become now. Um, it wasn't like I was walking into Channel 9 and, and being expected to to know everything straight away. I was... I was probably allowed to make more mistakes than I would have been in other places. And um, and I guess being an 18-year-old, you know, they knew that I was a kid and I, I, I was eager, obviously. And um, I remember it wasn't long after I got there, obviously, October 2001, the Bali bombings. Um, I was, I'd just turned 19 and, and I'd had no real experience doing news. Um, I'd, I'd gone in there to help on weekends to cut live sport packages and all of a sudden the Bali bombings happened um, and October 2002, sorry, wasn't yeah. it? Um, and I was on the phone to, to Balinese hospitals and um, Indonesian police and, and journos that were over there and it was a real, um, it was a, just such a quick learning curve and I don't think what I learned in that afternoon you could learn in three years of university. Um, I used to watch uni students come in and stare at the screen for a couple of days and, and I'd I'd like to think that I was working a little bit harder than that. And, and Murray Shaw and I ended up building a whole sports show that, that Sky never had before. And it was a great grounding. It was a great all-round experience because um, I guess they were learning as well, Sky. When you think about Bali 2002, and that's something that it doesn't happen every day, what did you learn about how you were able to cope with the pressure? Because obviously... When things happen like that, they're happening really quickly mm. and it's about getting the information and putting it out there. So what did you learn about how you could cope in a pressure situation such as that and then how did that serve you well for like down the track? I think I learned a lot. I think I think it, it helped me understand that your script doesn't have to be war and peace. Your script doesn't have to be, um, you know, so eloquent that, you know, everyone will will just drool over your prose. You know, you don't you don't have to be the the world's greatest writer to you, to get that immediate story across. You, you you just have to get the facts and and watching watching the presenters. I think who were on at the time. You know, people like John Gatfield, John Mangos, Lee Hatcher. I mean, Lee Hatcher could just look at a camera and talk, and he didn't have to be reading off an auto cue. Um, he was. He sounded like he knew exactly what he was talking about, uh, and, and it was because he did. Um, he was great at analysing information quickly, um, and, and I think that's what a journo has to do. You have to be able to understand something quickly. You don't have to know everything about the story, um, but you have to understand the basics of the story. And if you can get, if you can get those those uh, you know dot point details. Um, it's about retaining that, right? And yeah. Then, I guess repeating it, but 
doing it in a way that it doesn't look like you're regurgitating the same information over and over. And I guess that's probably one of the great skills that I guess people that don't actually work in, in media understand that recalling things that have just happened yeah. is a real skill and being able to convey a message and tell a story without the asset of a teleprompter or an auto cue or, or whatever, but being able to do that on the spot. Yeah, I guess that afternoon um, when Bali happened, I was in the office and I was on the phone. I wasn't out on the road. And obviously in later years, I've I've spent a lot of time on the road as a reporter. And, you know, you look at things like the audio of Hindenburg, um, you know, it's it's audio that will always be remembered, the oh, the humanity. And mm. And that reporter was only, I think he was 25 or 26 years old. All he was doing was explaining what was in front of him. Um, and I think if you can convey, you know, it, it, it sounds a little bit um, cliched, but it's painting a picture, mm. you know, for the audience, especially in radio. Um, if you can go to a story and and just communicate what, what you're seeing, um, as I said, I wasn't there in Bali. Thank goodness there were great journos there that were doing that. And um, getting to understand the story but also conveying it in, in a message that people at home who – who might not have a TV screen or, or you know, aren't, or the pictures aren't coming in quickly enough. The first journos would have been on the phone to really paint that picture of what's going on and make a viewer or a listener, particularly in radio, understand and, and appreciate what's going on. I think the thing about it is, is that it is that great skill of just being able to, I guess, tell a story how you might tell your family or your, your friends. You know, you don't have to go through and write a whole lot of information down or you don't have to feel like you need to embellish. I mean, basically, the people that are listening to a story or are watching it, they just want the basic facts. So the easier and the the quickest way to do that is to remember how you would tell your friends, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're out on the street and you see a fire, and you might ring your, your wife or your friend and say, you know, this building's burning down, you know. You'd be you'd be trying to say what you see when you're on the phone to a radio station as well. And I think Fox is big on that as well. It's 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 delivering information in the way that people understand information. And I think sometimes maybe a lot of young journos try to be a bit too clever with their writing and and, you know, a bit smart here and there. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, being clever with with how you write but not at the expense of the story you're trying to tell totally so sky news then you managed to to get in there and and as you said sort of learn a whole lot where did you then go from there yeah so obviously um i was still only a kid and i wanted to get into radio um and so i called a couple of radio stations 2go here on the central coast um, was one of them and uh, michelle kieran was the news director at the time and she gave me a go on weekends and I was reading um, and I'd never really done news other than, you know, helping the newsroom in times like Bali um, just, just as an extra set of hands. So I, yeah. I wasn't really across news but, um, you know, in regional markets you have to and um, I started reading news there on weekends at 2GO and, and then um, NXFM and KOFM in Newcastle, um, the two stereo stations up there came calling. Scott Keenan was the news director. Um, and he was only really young. Obviously, he was at Triple M um, previously. His nickname was the Kid because yep. he sort of did it 
similarly to to how I did it as well. He got a he was the next big thing. I mean, he was a, he was a great journo um, in his early twenties, a news director in Newcastle. Um, I guess he may have liked what he saw in me. Maybe he saw a bit of himself. Yeah. Um, started up there um, as as a breakfast radio uh, newsreader at the number one and number two radio stations in Newcastle. And so how was... did you find that, that transition from, okay, so the early baptism was in TV, um, you'd had a little bit of experience in radio, then going straight into breakfast radio on like a pretty big market yeah. when you, you think about it, like in terms of the regional um, side of things, Newcastle, a big sort of uh, city in the, in that regard. How did you find slotting into that with the barest of, of experience? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a really good question because I suppose I've, I've spent my whole life just doing it, not really thinking about how I'm going to do it or if I'm going to be able to do it. And is that the way your brain thinks? It's kind of like, okay, well, what do I need to do to achieve this objective? What are the basics? And then yeah, just not, put it all together? Yeah, not am I going to be able to. Yeah. It's just how am I going to do this? You know, if, if someone throws me in the deep end, I'm going to swim. You know, I'm not going to let myself drown. And, um, and I guess it was just... Um, Immersing myself in Newcastle, you know, meeting mayors, meeting police people, understanding their roles, understanding what they did, understanding what they wanted to achieve, um, taking in, I suppose, what what I'd learnt almost subconsciously ever since I was 13, 14 years old by just listening to to radio news, um, you know, once again going back to the two UEs, the Sandy Aloises, the Steve Blanders, you know, the way that they presented the news. Um, I guess it was just kind of somewhere in the back of my mind, even though I hadn't really been taught it. Um, I had been taught it, if that makes sense, by by listening to those people. And, um, you know, Scott was obviously a very good news director. I got a lot of um, direction from him and, and, you know, he helped out an awful lot. Um, and I guess just understanding those markets, um, understanding the two sets of radio stations as well, because yeah. obviously one of them is, is um, you know, trying to get a younger audience, one of them is trying to get an older audience. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question because I've never, never really thought about how I managed to, to transition to it. I kind of just, I, I just knew I had to, I, you know, I'd been given a, a full-time, my first full-time job, um, and I wanted a career in the media and I was going to make sure I was, I was good at it. Um, and I, you know, I probably still wonder if I'm good at it, but you know, I, I, I always make sure that I'm not going to let someone down I, you know I, I want to do the best job I can and it was a, it was a fantastic experience and and you know I left on great terms up there and and that was to go to the big smoke uh, you know to go to Sydney but um, it wasn't after a, a, a lot of fun in Newcastle you know at the two best stations in in Newcastle well I guess that's where the opportunity opened for you in many regards that Andrew John suffered a, a neck injury or my was it a neck injury at that yeah, stage or was, was it a knee was, injury? No, it yeah. was the neck, um, yeah. And obviously being Andrew John's the best player in the game, the player of his generation, any news uh, pertaining to, to him was was massive. Mm. So the weird setup that was the 2UE and 2GB newsrooms when they were independent was the links to Newcastle were the same yeah. in some bizarre Correct. sort of uh, way. I think it was through Southern Cross somehow. Yeah, through Austereo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because 2GB had the, the the file access to Austereo, which is obviously the where the Newcastle stations were positioned. Now, yeah. I don't know how that was uh, in regards to 2UE, but cutting a long story short, on the, those days where it was going to be announced 
what was happening with mm. Joey, you were the guy that was at the media conference. Two yeah. UE and Two GB were both wanting you to do it, and you were doing crosses for both stations. Correct, and which I, is bizarre. And I think I was doing Sky News as well that day. So it was, yeah, it was obviously a big day for rugby league, but it was, I suppose, a big day for me as well. And um, quite often we were asked to do, you know, voice reports for for the Sydney stations if there was a big big news story out of Newcastle murders and things like that. But that day, obviously, um, yeah, Joey, I remember him walking into the press conference, obviously with his, with his neck brace on, um, you know, and, and I, I was doing, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I did live crosses with Ray. Um, yep. you know, it, it, it was a big day for me as well, because I'm talking to these journos that, uh, or, or these presenters that, you know, yeah. you don't, you'd only dream of being on their show sort of thing. And, um, and obviously news directors probably heard, heard those, those reports as well, I guess. Well, that was the thing. It was just like Justin Kelly came into the newsroom and said, we've got a guy in Newcastle. His name's Glenn Lauder. He'll be filing for you. Okay. So no worries. You know, you'd be doing it and you'd file the audio or whatever. Mm. Then a couple of months later, you came and worked for us. So yeah. it was one of those situations where, You'd obviously shown Justin enough in those crosses that you'd done at Newcastle to get a shot in Sydney. And once again, it, it comes back to not really having any formal training. It was just learning on the job and doing what I thought was was best for what was going to air. And um, yeah, I got the call from Justin. It was a few weeks later. I don't think it was overly connected to that. It was probably mm. after I'd done a few other voice reports as well. And Obviously, a position had come up. Someone had, had moved on. He was looking to fill a spot. Um, and yeah, he called me and said, Do you want to come to Sydney? And, um, obviously that was where you wanted to be. It was the 2GB newsroom. Um, it was the, at the time, 2004, it was the number one radio station in Sydney. Ray and Alan had already come across. They were already there. Um, so 2UE had started its, its decline, I guess, in 2004. It had the continuous call. Obviously, I wanted to do rugby league as well. But but regardless, I mean, if it could have been any newsroom in Sydney, I think that rung me and said, "Do you want to come down?" I would have bitten their arm off, and I took a, a little bit of a pay cut. But um, you know, it's, it's that's, that's bizarre to think that you would taken a pay cut from a, a regional centre such as Newcastle to to come to Sydney. Yeah, correct. It's uh, and I guess that's the way that the media industry works. I mean, I don't think any of us got into it for the money, but. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was whirlwind. Actually, I'd only spent nine months in Newcastle, and um, I was actually planning to to move in with a housemate because I was living on my own, and and um, myself and another person sort of said, "Oh, um, you know, we'll we'll move in together." And it was all all kind of, um, it was all happening, and and then I had to to say to her, oh, "You know, I've got this job in Sydney. You're going to have to find another housemate." So. Yeah, headed down and um, walked into the 2GB newsroom and, and spent two years there. Just and, and you know a huge learning experience again. Another part, another step on on the um, education. You've always been someone based on what you said earlier there about not having to worry about doing the hard yards. So if it meant weekends, you were mm. willing to work weekends, um, do overnights. You're willing to do overnights. That attitude, it doesn't always prevail in people looking to break into media, but I think it's an essential pathway if you really want to succeed in it. It's a huge it – is, it is imperative that you have to be prepared to do that. Um, I don't know whether every young journo coming through now is prepared to do that, um, and the industry is getting so much smaller and, and they have to because the attitude – from media companies now is if you don't want to do the mid-dawn shift, someone behind you will. There will be someone else who's prepared to do it. Um, and yeah, I, you know, it comes with the territory and, and I'm very lucky now that I, that I work daytime hours. And sometimes I think that people I work with might 
look at me with a sense of resentment, but they didn't see the, you know, starting at 10 p.m. and finishing at 6 a.m. and and the um the 2004 Athens Olympics. I'd only been at at 2GB for a couple of months and um you know 17 overnights in a row. Um, you know, you have to put in the hard yards and and especially as a sports journalist, sport happens on weekends. You know, if, if you want to be a sports journalist. Ken Sutcliffe has been in the industry for 40 or 50 years. He works every Sunday. Um, it's just the way it has to be. You sort of kiss that goodbye, but it's the enjoyment factor of actually working those shifts and, and getting the satisfaction out of doing those things and covering those stories and, and all of those things. So sport was obviously something that you wanted to do. Mm. You had to do your ground in the newsroom because obviously there's limited amount of people that are, doing the the sports gigs and it's getting smaller and smaller, particularly in radio. So um, how important was it for you to just be so adaptable and to fit in wherever there was a, a spot, knowing that you fully wanted to uh, pursue that that sporting side of things? I really enjoyed going out of my comfort zone. Um, you know, the first time is going to court, just having absolutely no idea what was going on and, um, you know, the other journos, it's it, it's a collegiate atmosphere. You might be working against each other. You might be trying to, to beat each other to the stories. But when you're all at the same story, people help each other out. And and so many journos have been so great, um, you know, in in my career from from other networks and other radio stations, other TV stations, other newspapers helping you out. Um, and and I think it's so important to have that versatility and and I wasn't versatile in the in the early stages you you might be right I might have been adaptable but I wasn't versatile <laughs> but you but you become versatile you know the more you do going back to what I said earlier it's just about learning on the job it's about sinking or swimming and and if you go to court and you have to file a court story you have to get it right um there's obviously the so legal there's no there's no shame in asking someone more experienced than you a dumb question in order to get your report right absolutely and you know what the person who's more experienced than you would have asked that dumb question 10 years ago that person has been where you've been um and and they remember it and and I'd like to think that I'm helping out sort of younger journos from learning from my mistakes because you know you never go to you never go through life without making a mistake and and it's about how you improve from those mistakes how you learn from them how you use them to improve yourself and and hopefully help other people who would you say were the most helpful people to you as you came along through your career because like you said you weren't afraid to ask a question you weren't afraid to lean upon someone to get the information because ultimately being the radio or media nerd that you were mm. you knew what the standards were sure so who helped you along the way to become better at what you what you were doing there's just so many and and even when there's even when there's someone who's maybe only giving you one piece of advice it's 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 a patchwork to to keep you know, all of those tiny little bits of advice. Certainly, I've mentioned him four or five times now. Murray Shaw gave me my first job at 2UE, uh, sorry, at Sky News. Um, I worked with him as a work experience kid um, at 2UE when I was 15 or 16. He taught me so much in those early days at Sky. Um, 
giving me such a great grounding to become a journo. He's now the head of football at Fox Sports, so he's still giving me a job, which is um, testament to the bloke. Um, <laughs> his patience, I suppose, yeah, more than anything. Like I said, I've, I've finally lost this lord of <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's probably thought he's got rid of me a few times. Um, look, Andrew Moore, as you would know, um, you know, being part of the continuous call in the early days was – was huge and and he was reading breakfast sport as well at at 2GB so um once once I went from from news to sport I was I was doing afternoon sport and taking over from him and and the guidance he gave me was just uh it was just amazing um you know as I said Scott Keenan in Newcastle was a fantastic guide early on um and as was Taryn Edwards who took over as the the news director there um you know Justin Kelly was great at at 2GB and and I probably left there in in terms that I if I had my time again I wouldn't have liked to have have left on those terms Rowan Barker was the the breakfast editor in those days and and you know Rowan well as well and um just a a fantastic radio guy um someone who's who's probably done it the old-fashioned way as well and um he was fantastic I went to Channel 10 and um, you know, Daniel Lane was, was great in the early days. Um, David Tunnicliffe, Owen Martin, um, who was, who'd been in the industry forever and a day. Um, but just one of the nicest guys that you would ever meet. Um, and, and just all your colleagues as well. I mean, I, I could sit here and take up the whole hour and just rattle <laughs> off names. Um, but yeah, I guess those people in, in the early days were, were the ones and, and a lot of people at Sky as well. Um, a lot of the news producers at Sky that helped out as well. Yeah. I don't want to mention too many names for fearing missing any others out, but, mm. um, every piece of advice that you get, take it on board and, and play around with it. See if it's for you. Tell me about the move to Channel 10. That came calling, I think in 2005. That was another big progression in your career. What fascinated you about TV? Why did you decide to uh, go down that path from from radio? Yeah, it was huge. Um, I don't know why. Um, I suppose it was the obvious next step. Um, a lot of radio journalists were making the move into television. Um, and, you know, I, without wanting to, to sound too egotistical, the idea of being on television was probably – um, a driving factor, and I'm sure it was for a lot of people as well. Yep. Um, I had the opportunity to become a rugby league reporter at Channel 10 um, to be part of Sports Tonight, which was a great – it was an institution, I think, not just to me, but a lot of kids growing up in the yep. 90s and 2000s. Um, yeah, it was kind of a funny story um, getting that job. We were at the Steve War medal dinner night, the New South Wales Cricket Awards, um, and I was um, sitting next to Daniel Lane, who was who was at 10 at the time, and I was there for 2GB, and – as is often the case at those awards nights, uh, journos, you know, tend to let their hair down a little bit. And, Just a fraction. Yeah. Um, and I sort of woke up the next morning hoping I hadn't sort of offended anyone or uh, got the phone call from Daniel Lane and, and he said, you know, I really enjoyed it. I, I actually did work experience with him when I was right. 16 as well. Um, and uh, he rang me the next day and said, really enjoyed, you know, catching up and knowing that you're, you're progressing. Um, why don't you come in and have a chat? And, um, yeah, it, it, it was – I guess the bright lights of, of television, you know, it was, it was something that you don't really say no to. Um, 2GB was fantastic. I was, I was part of continuous call every now and then doing some around the ground stuff, um, and, and reading sports news. But, um, you know, to get the opportunity to be a rugby league reporter at Channel 10, um, was, was a huge opportunity. Tony Peters was there at the time as well to, 
to learn off him. Uh, he and I weren't working with each other for very long at all. He left um, and Adam Hawes came in. So Adam Hawes and I were kind of the, the two new faces at the same time. Hawsey obviously had a paper background and, um, yeah, so he did five o'clock, I did sports tonight, and, and we built up a, a bit of a team together. What did you learn as the main differences? You had experience in TV before mm. going back to Sky News, but it's a whole lot different when you're in that uh, more professional environment in, the, in a commercial sense. What did you learn, as I said, the main differences from uh, radio to TV? I think working with pitches, and I think it's something that um, I'm I'm still probably trying to grasp because I've spent most of my career in radio and, and part of it in television. Um, you almost have to use the pitches and then write to them. Uh, whereas in, in radio, you just, you write the story, but you can't really write the story in television unless you have the pitches to go with it. Um, you've got a lot more time in television as well. Um, back then, obviously we had two bulletins. We had, we had the five o'clock bulletin and then sports tonight. Um, and generally, the newsroom was much better resourced um, in terms of people. Um, so there was a lot more time to to craft a story um, and, and to work on one story during a day. Um, that took a little bit of time to get used to. I was bashing out packages sort of inside an hour and wondering what to do for the rest of the day because it was a, a radio sort of mentality. I think that's the common perception or the common, I guess, feeling from people that go from radio to TV, it's like because you're used to, in some Speed. cases, doing half-hour bulletins, yeah. so you're racing the clock every half an hour to producing one story per day. What is this? It was it was bizarro world, absolutely. It was like, what have I? I've just, uh, you know, fallen on a pile of gold here. This is sensational. I have to write a minute and a half all day. <laughs> um, but, yeah, certainly, obviously, there was a lot more that went into that minute and a half worth of news. Um Chasing content, um, chasing talking heads uh, became a lot harder. Um, you have to work out how the logistics are probably was, was a big thing I learned yeah. as well because uh, in radio it's just you and a microphone or, or you and a telephone. Um, but in television you obviously have to work out how to get a TV crew and you have to rely on the fact that there's a crew available. They might be off doing a news job and um, can this person get to, to a certain place at, at any one time. I remember um, – for a Sports Tonight cross, they just announced the Australian Kangaroos test team and Scott Prince was in it. He was at the West Tigers at the time and and we rang Scott and uh, said, do you mind doing a live cross into Sports Tonight? And he's like, yeah, fine, no worries. Went round to his house in Western Sydney. Um, he had an Australian polo. Um, he was in his boxer shorts, in his lounge room, um, and we've just filmed a live cross, obviously, from the waist up. And mm -hmm. I'm sitting in Scott Prince's lounge room with him in his boxer shorts while he's doing a live cross. And <laughs> You know that that kind of thing you would you would sort of never even dream of in radio, I guess. And and it was just, I suppose, a, another level at, at, at the base. It, it's very similar because it's telling a story, but it's just adding that that element to it and and working on my delivery as well, I guess. Um, you know how to present in front of a camera. You had an opportunity to go to the World Cup in two thousand and six. It was obviously a huge moment for all Australian sports fans. It was mm. a long time between drinks for the Socceroos and like so many other sports-mad Aussies, to go to Germany for the World Cup, that must have been a great experience. Yeah, I, it, it, was, it was a great time for the Australians to qualify as well because the A-League was a season old and, and football was starting to have this um, new life, I guess, that it, that it didn't have before. And it was a huge 
issue for me, actually. It was a really big decision because I didn't go for Channel 10. Um, they were sending Neil Cordy and and I think a, a Melbourne journalist went as well. And obviously I was only quite young and, and didn't ever expect to be the one chosen to go. But I didn't want to miss it. I didn't want to not be at the Socceroos' world, first World Cup in 32 years. Um, and a few of my mates were were desperate to go as well and, and I wrangled with it. Um, I spoke to, to people at Channel 10 and um, at 24 years old, I, a rugby league journalist at a commercial network in Sydney, I decided to to pull up stumps and, and I quit Channel 10 and um, decided to go to Europe for a month and then England, you know, I, I was kind of planning to go for a year and ended up there for two and a half years, but I wouldn't change it for the world, I don't think. You're someone that always manages to fall on your feet somehow. Yeah. It's just one of those things that you're one of those guys that manages to strike up a conversation with the necessary person yeah. at the necessary time. So you've gone from World Cup experience there to uh, just enjoying it and lapping it up yeah. and then going to England and then flumming your way into, well, what, what was first? Was it the TV job first or was it the media manager yeah. job at, Gillingham, yeah, your, Gillingham, yeah, your team that you fought, that you Correct. supported, yeah, you went on a stadium tour, if I'm not mistaken, uh, very similar to that, yeah. I um, so Gillingham's the team that that I mentioned earlier that Gary Burchett from from Fox Sports News uh, also supports. But it, it, just before I get to that story, it's funny how you you say that I always sort of fall on my feet. I'm sure you know family and friends think that as well. That you know I'm I'm just kind of arsy. I'm in the right place at the right time. Um, it obviously comes with a lot of hard work, and once you get that opportunity, you have to prove that you're good. Yeah, enough. but you've got to have the conversations, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So- I, look, I, I have been, you know, Steve War Medal Night, getting drunk with Daniel Lane and um, Joey breaking his neck, and and all those kind of things have, have definitely helped. But yeah, so so after a month um, of travelling around Europe with my mates, just just having probably the best month of my life, um, I went to Gillingham because that's where my dad grew up, and my cousin, who's Australian was living there at the time playing in a cricket team. So I had a bit of a base there. My aunt and uncle uh, were living there as well. And uh, it was a good base for me to set up in England. Yeah. Um, I needed to find Because most people go straight to London, right? Yeah, and that's correct. where they hang out. Exactly. Um, and I probably would have. I had friends um, in London that I could have, you know, stayed in Anne Frank's house with, um, you know, 400 other Australians in, in a four-bedroom place, but uh, as most of them do. But, um, yeah, I, look, I had the family um, network already set up. So I went to the southeast in Kent where Gillingham is and decided that um, I'd spent way too much money in my time in, in Europe. I had nothing left. Um, so I had to get a job. Um, and I went to, I, I had a few contacts. Uh, Lee Diffie, who was at Channel 10, had spent time in there and gave me some great contacts as well. Um, so I uh, I rang around a few places, had a few interviews lined up. And, and the first day I went there, I thought, I oh, wouldn't mind just going and seeing Gillingham Stadium. And um, I walked in and, and sort of said, oh, exp- explain where they are in the overall scheme of things. Yeah, so they're in League One, which uh, it goes Premier League Championship League One. Um, so they're in the third tier of English football, probably about the the 60th best club in in England, I guess. Um, the stadium holds 11,000 people. Um, I walked in, uh, they've got a club shop there. I bought a jersey and and I said, oh, is there any chance of just sort of having a look at the pitch? They're they're not big enough to do stadium tours, and they said, oh yeah, come through. So it was kind of almost an individual stadium tour. You know, you just walk out onto the pitch and take a few photos. And I said, oh, who's your who's your press officer, you know, your media officer? And they sort of said, oh, we don't really have one at the moment. 
I'm like, okay. And I, I basically just thought, well, I'm a journalist, you know, I'll introduce myself, um, see if they've got any leads. Yeah. Uh, we don't have one. So I said, oh, okay, that's interesting. And and I sent an email to the chairman and, and by the Monday I was um, in his office having a meeting and by the Tuesday I was the media manager for the Gillingham Football Club, <laughs> having having no PR experience. Um, so you were pretty much just writing match reports. How were you getting press in yeah, look, look, football is is huge in England, and you know even Sky were interested in in the lower leagues. Um, every now and then they had a TV game, and um, we had a couple of newspapers, a couple of radio stations, a couple of TV stations. So we did actually have a, a fair bit of media interest around us. So um, yeah, I was doing you know game day uh, match reports and things like that. But there was a lot to deal with, and I think media managers in Australia would just just absolutely fall over themselves to understand what what it's like to be a media manager in England because our our gaffer our manager just had absolutely no interest in the media he didn't want to bar of it um every opportunity the media had um was like pulling teeth with him so basically we had one organized media conference once a week with the manager that was it um NRL clubs now you know I think they put four players up every day yep. um and it was my job was really to to keep the media away almost which was which was very strange and and it was it was tough it wasn't an easy year but um yeah, it was fun though you know traveling to Port Vale or Cheltenham on a Tuesday night in the freezing cold and uh, on the team bus and and you know sort of being part of that that football culture for the first time was uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. What did you learn from that experience being on the other side for the first time in such a, I guess, remote environment compared to what you were used to? I was just kind of flown by the seat of my pants. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just and and websites were kind of only new at the time, and we were we were developing the website, and um, I was interacting with fans, and I I was the voice of the club, and and because we were we were small, I guess I was doing corporate stuff as well, and. Um, I learned so much, uh, you know, from my time there, just about how businesses work, I think, more than anything, because before that, I was just a journal. I, I went in, did my story, went home sort of thing. But to understand how the business operates really helped me as well, I think. And uh, it was it was definitely uh, an eye opener. I probably decided in that seven or eight months that I, PR really wasn't quite for me, but it didn't stop me from doing it again uh, mm. down the track, I guess. I, I guess. But, yeah, we had a, a Sky TV game one Friday night uh, and I was kind of – it was near the end of the season and I was kind of thinking, what do I do next? And spoke to this guy, Journo that was down there doing interviews and um, sort of once again, you know, wrangled my way into somewhere else. Talk to me about that because this is the days before Facebook, okay? So only way you could really communicate with your mates – uh, overseas was via email. Mm. So, you know, next thing you know, an email pops in and Glenn Lord, oh, yeah, what's he up to? You know, last time he was, because I came over when you, I think, when you were meeting manager. Yeah, I think for, I was still at Gillingham. Yeah, yeah, at that stage. And then obviously we'd kept in touch or whatever. Next thing you know, next email comes through. Oh, I've got a job for a TV. <laughs> he managed to ask his way into something else yeah. again. So, yeah, so I got the email from, I uh, got the email address of the boss from this journal and um, gave them gave them a message and they said, come up and have a look. We're always looking for freelancers. Um, and I went up there and um, once again I, was, I told them that I obviously had a radio and television background and um, started as a freelancer almost straight away. It was probably the best year of my life. I was only a sub-editor. I, I think I, I did three packages in my, in my year yep. and a bit there, basically because of my accent. Um, I did a screen test. I was going to say, how difficult was that for them to, to cop? Yeah, I, I did a screen test and, and they loved what they saw and I said to the boss, what what can I do, you know, to be 
what can I change to be better? And he said, change your accent. That was the only issue they had with me. So the three packages I did, I think one was um, Australian cricket game, one was um, a Super League game, um, and one was actually Mark Bosnich's debut for the Central Coast Mariners. So, um, yeah, they were the only times I got let on on TV, my voice did, because of the accent. And and I can understand, you know, an Australian telling English people about football sounds pretty daft. So, um, But, yeah, as a sub-editor, you know, I was cutting a lot of LVOs and and um, doing a bit of producing and and teeing up interviews and things like that. It was um, it was a great year. Everyone was uh, still probably some of my best friends are the people I worked with there and um, being just being part of this massive massive machine um, that was interested in ninety two football clubs plus every other sport. It was just phenomenal. So where were they based? That was they were based in Brentford, um, in West London. Uh, I was living in Gillingham, which is southeast London. Um, the commute was about an hour. I was starting at 3 a.m. So I found myself driving through London at, at 2 o'clock in the morning, which was as a still a tourist, I guess, was pretty cool, yeah. um, driving past Westminster and places like that at, at 2 a.m. You've got it all to yourself sort of thing. It was it was pretty amazing. Yeah, so um, they were up there and, and, yeah, I spent a bit over a year there just, just loving it. What brought you back here? I met my girlfriend, now wife, over there. Um, and when we first met, I I made it very clear that I always wanted to come home. And I think it was just the lure of being home. I think beaches and sunshine and mm. not getting dark at three o'clock in the afternoon. But the culture over there is is fantastic. You know, going down to the pub on a Tuesday night to watch England play, or going down on a Thursday to watch Champions League. It's it's a great culture. I played cricket over there. I made some wonderful friends. Um, but I guess there was no place like home. And then Channel 10 again yeah, came to the party. Exactly. So was that a case of you using up your contacts again saying, hi, guys, I'm back? Yeah, basically. Craig Reynolds was still the boss. He was the boss when I left yeah. uh, and he was still the boss when I got back and I said, look, I- I'd kept in touch um, while I was over there. Um, I'd always sort of stayed in touch with people emailing and Facebook slowly started to appear and, yeah. you know, you start adding people as friends and finding out what they're up to. And so I had a lot of mates that were at Channel 10 and and I still felt, I'd been gone for two years, but I still felt that that was sort of my home in Australia work-wise. So I rang Craig and, and I was able, thankfully, to go straight back in as a freelancer, but it didn't last very long at all. And why did you then decide to, well, you're from the Central Coast, we haven't sort of hidden that fact, the lure of becoming the media manager for the Central Coast Mariners, which you are obviously a keen fan of. Yeah. You were a season ticket holder. Yeah, when member, they... member number 220. Wow, so, okay, yeah. there you go. So what was that like to become part of the club that you'd obviously supported being a strong Central Coast person that yeah. was so keen to see the area represented in a in a national competition. It's so huge for the Central Coast, that club. It's more than just a football club. The amount of community work they do is just phenomenal and, and they've done they've done so much for this region on and off the field, just just making it known worldwide. I'm sure tourism's probably been helped a little bit by them in some way. But yeah, I, I said earlier that I decided when I was at Gillingham that PR wasn't really for me, but um, Ben Coonan was the media manager and he rang me and said, I'm leaving. Basically, do you want the job? And I'd been commuting virtually all my career and it was a job on the Central Coast. Um, it was at the club that I absolutely loved. I had a great relationship already through the media with their with their manager, Laurie McKinna. Um, I knew a few of the players. How rare is it that an inaugural coach of a football team becomes the mayor. Yeah. (laughs) 
he's uh i i still obviously stay in touch with laurie he's now the mayor of gosford city and uh, i think it's just testament to the bloke he is he's just the most likable out there kind of person you will ever meet he's got time for everyone nothing is ever too much trouble for him he, you know as a football coach you need to be sort of a bit highly strung sometimes and a bit intense laurie mckinna is absolutely not he takes everything in his stride. Um, he used to. He, he said to me once, um, "It's nice to be nice," and and I think people can take a lot out of that. Um, and and probably a lot of professional athletes sometimes, you know, they rightly or wrongly so, they can be wrapped up in their own little bubbles. But but Laurie was just just amazing, and he was a big lure as to why I th- I thought this job would be good because I knew he was so media friendly. I knew that there wasn't a big media population on the Central Coast, a radio station, uh, sorry, a TV station, one newspaper and two radio stations. Um, it was kind of similar to Gillingham, but I, I felt that it was going to be a little bit easier to sell the media to the club and the club to the media. Let's then talk about the next step. That was then back to radio, but here on the, the Central Coast, you didn't necessarily think that PR or being a media manager was for you. Yeah. That lure of just being radio guy again, that was what you wanted at that stage of your life? Definitely. I, the Mariners was a much better experience than Gillingham. I, I enjoyed my two years at the Mariners immensely. There was a lot of travel um, and there was a lot of stuff that I didn't enjoy doing, but it was, it was immensely enjoyable. But it wasn't being a journo. Um, I wanted to be a journalist um, and I knew that I was a journalist. Um, I wasn't a, a media manager, really. Um, so their their journo was leaving and and they were the radio Star FM were the Mariners official radio station. So I had a great relationship with the program director, the general manager, and and the journo that was there at the time um, who was leaving Dave Dolan to bizarrely enough got in NXFM in Newcastle. Sort of it's all very uh, roundabout in in this industry. Um, so I said to them, you know, I'd love to get back into it. Um, I miss it. It's where I want to be. It's it's my passion. Um, and so I found myself setting my alarm at 3.30 again pretty quickly, doing um, breakfast radio at, at Star FM on the Central Coast. And that was obviously aligned to the Nova Network. It was, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I started um, started doing a lot of stuff for them because I was only on till lunchtime and then they took over. So, um, you know, we, we had a good relationship with their news newsroom and Matt DeGroote came in as National News Director and uh, I'd never sort of worked with Matt before, but... Um, he's obviously, um, a larger than life figure as well. Um, you know, he, he's a great guy. Um, and he gave me a few opportunities, um, you know, going down to Nova. I, I read out of Nova Brisbane for state of origin. I read out of Nova Melbourne for state of origin. So, um, you know, meeting, meeting sort of Nova people. And, and I guess just, I saw Star FM as, as a step to getting back into Sydney, I guess. After how long was that before you then pursued the, the TUE line of thinking? Obviously, known Matt McDonald, who was the news director at TUE for quite a while, and I think it was a case of going into radio info. Actually, I think I, um, the great website for, for journo's looking for jobs um, went onto radio info, noticed that TUE were looking for a journo. As I said, you know, I was working at a great radio station. I was working on the Central Coast. I was five minutes from home, but you know, I was thirty. I wasn't fifty. I, I think if I was fifty, two um, star would have been a great place yeah. because you know it was a nice little earner. It was it was cruisy, but at thirty, you want to test yourself. You, you want to still be at the yeah. top of your game. So I rang Mac, Mac, Matt McDonald. Um, sort of said, "You want me to send you know, my CV?" And he said, "Well, don't worry about your CV, like, <laughs> please. I know I know what you've done, sort of thing." Uh, so uh, I went down for a, for a meeting, and uh, yeah, it was obviously 
he'd known what I'd done and, and I'd had plenty of experience by then and um, found myself in the TUE newsroom. I kind of became the 2IC for everything. Um, you know, if if our court reporter was away, Leonie Ryan, I'd go on courts. If our police reporter, Michelle Tavaniti, was away, I'd go on police. If, um, you know, State Parley, if Derek Peterson was away, I'd be the one to go to State Parley sort of thing. It was just, just I suppose, by this stage of my career, I had become versatile. Um, and obviously I wanted to do sport, but we didn't have a sport department at all. So uh, when we did go to sport jobs, it was me. Uh, and I was always the next cab off the rank. Matt, Matt was reading and editing drive, but obviously had a lot of admin stuff to do as well. So, um, you know, I jumped in the chair quite a bit and, and really enjoyed, um, being an editor in a, in a newsroom, which I hadn't really done before and being in charge of where to send people and organizing jobs. And, and that was a, a, a new string to the bow as well. And that, that taught me a lot, I guess, about management, which I hadn't had to really think about before. We discussed earlier about how the 2UE newsroom closed down. Mm. What was that like living it? There's this great institution that had been around for such a long time and had bred so many great journalists mm. over the years. To be part of that when the news came through that it had been speculated for yeah. quite some time, but when you were actually given an end date, mm. can you tell us about what the feeling was like within the newsroom at that stage? It was the worst experience I'd ever been a part of in the media by by a country mile. It was it was horrible. Morale was non-existent. People didn't know if they had jobs. People were getting to the stage where they decided, why should I put in the extra effort? Where What am I going to get out of this? We're not going to have a newsroom by April. We didn't know who to believe because we had stories coming from, obviously, Matt, the news director, was hearing things. The program director, Clinton Maynard, was hearing things. The general manager was hearing things that was all coming from what at the time was our rival. We were still 2UE Newsroom competing against 2GB, trying to beat them to the story. But we knew that there was going to be one newsroom in Sydney in April. We knew that there was that we were going to be as one with them by a certain date. And and you just – I was editing quite a bit at that stage because Matt was always in meetings, obviously. Um, and you just had journos on the phone out on the road. Just It was – everything was negative. And, and the hardest thing for me was trying to stay focused because I was the one in charge of putting bulletins to air. If, if I took my foot off the gas – bulletins wouldn't have gone to air. And I don't want to sound like, you know, it was me or, or nothing because obviously it was a huge team effort, but I was kind of the person in the chair at the time. And um, that last day, once again, I was I was editing. So it was my responsibility to, to get the bulletins to air. I just had journo after journo going to meetings with general managers being told whether they were staying or going. And it was, you know, people coming up in tears five minutes before a bulletin and all you want to do is put your arm around them and and have a chat and you've got to kind of palm them off and say, sorry, I've got a bulletin in, in five minutes. I've got to, I've got to read the news. The show must go on. And, and my heart just broke every, every hour that someone else had come up to be told they've gone because virtually everyone at TUE were told that they were going to be made redundant. From the start, from November, December, we were told that it's going to be a merger um, everyone's on the same page. Merger, not a takeover. Correct. That's what we were told. Everyone was going to be on the same page. And it was quite clear in that last week or two, and certainly that last day, that it wasn't the case. And our last bulletin was fantastic. Um, Amelia Burney was so passionate about what she did, only a young journalist, but she basically took the six o'clock bulletin on board. Um, she said, everyone 
every journo in this newsroom is going to voice a package or voice a, a, yep. a report. Um, and we did, and I read sport. Uh, Matt had the honour of reading the last ever bulletin, rightly so, because, um, you know, he held that place together remarkably. And it was a great bulletin and we all had had drinks in the newsroom and kind of pulled it apart, pulled all the old memorabilia off the walls and all the old photos of the TUE mic flag in the newspapers and all walked out the door and turned the lights off. And after 90 years, that was the end of the, the TUE newsroom. As someone who you mentioned that was your station that you listened to mm. here on the Central Coast, what was it like just being part of the end of the chapter? I guess in a in a strange way, it was a huge honour. Coast FM or Triple C, the, the, the community station I was at when I was 13, took TUE news bulletins. It's all I ever heard, basically, when I was a kid. Um, to work there, even though by the time I got there, it was ailing. Um, it, was a, it was an ill radio station. It was just special to be a part of that station. And we had, on Australia Day in um, 2014, we had uh, 90th, 2015, we had the 90th year celebrations and hearing, you know, the old jingles, um, excerpts of the old shows. It had been around for 90 years. It was the first commercial radio station in Sydney, the first commercial newsroom in Sydney. And I'm I'm a radio junkie. I'm almost more of a radio junkie than a sport junkie. I, mm. I don't know which one um, is, is is sort of more intense for me, but it was just a, it was a horrible day, but but a place that I'm so thankful to have to have been a part of. We'll wrap it up in a sec, but what I want to get from you is I want to get some advice for younger people looking to break into the industry. It's obviously a whole lot harder than what it used to be. Mm. The path that you trod probably doesn't get the amount of people that it used to. Sure. What would you say to people that are looking, that are currently studying at university or uh, radio nerds like you that want to get into media? I think the important thing is to understand that the industry is very small and it's getting smaller. People can't expect to walk into jobs anymore. I've been I've been so lucky that jobs have opened up. I've also made sure that I've done a good job of them once I've gotten them. But people need to be prepared to do the hard yards. I saw on Radio Info this morning a job open up in Nowra. I don't think a lot of young journalists would be interested in going to Nowra to start their careers, but I think they need to be because people like Peter Overton or Mark Ferguson don't just walk in to become the anchor of Nine News or Seven News. They have to do it really hard. They have to do those mid-dawns. They have to do those weekends. They have to be knocking on people's doors, um, you know, after they've lost a loved one. It's it's a tough road. It's not glamorous. It doesn't pay well. Um, it's a great industry to be a part of, but you have to want to be a part of it. You can't just want to be a part of it because your face will be on television or your voice will be on the radio. And to get Instagram followers. Yeah, don't even start me. <laughs> what is social media? I that, probably need to get better at that. But people have to be passionate about the media industry and most of my friends that I've made in the media have been doing it since they were teenagers, since before they were teenagers. I think if you're going to be successful in the media, you have to know that you want to do it. I, I've I've been in the industry for 16 years and there's been two work experience people that I've worked with that I've noticed that when they were doing work experience that they would go on to have successful careers in the media. And they both have. Mm-mm. It's pretty obvious to tell who wants to be there and who doesn't want to be there. Make it work, enjoy it and just be successful at it, I guess. Um, just love it because because it's an industry to 
that deserves to be loved. Glenn Lauder, thanks very much for your time. Been a pleasure. There he is, Glenn Lauder from Fox Sports News. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Glenn, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at Glenn006. That's Glenn with one N. I should also let you know that Glenn contributes on this podcast behind the scenes, tidying up all of the stuff that I can't do. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It'll mean you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or review. That way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.